Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us. I just spoke with David Spafford about his great new book, A Sense of Place, The Political Landscape in Late Medieval Japan. This came out in 2013 with the Harvard University Asia Center of Harvard University Press. The book is extraordinarily rich, and what it does over the course of five chapters in a coda is it moves us away from an idea of late medieval Japanese history that focuses on a story of transformation, of change, radical or subtle change from some state to some other state, and instead brings us into a very rich, a multivocal, an interdisciplinary, and a really fascinating space inhabited by people in particular, local provincial elites of the Kanto region from the late 15th through the early to mid-16th century, and, and takes us into how they were imagining different ways of conceptualizing, inhabiting, and creating space in their lifetimes. And so the book takes us through literary sources, legal sources, sources about castles and the military, about governance, about the creation and maintenance of families at different levels. And in doing so, it paints a really detailed and a very vivid picture of conceptualizations and daily life around space in its various manifestations in the late medieval period in Japan. It's really, really fascinating, not just for scholars of Japanese studies, but really for anyone who's interested in the medieval, who's interested in pre-modern history, in castles, and who among us is not interested in castles, right? And in ways, historically, that local people have created different ways of thinking about and living space. So it's a fascinating book. I'll keep this short because the conversation um, is pretty extensive. And I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And I also hope you enjoy the book. It's a really, really rich study, and we just barely scratched the surface. We're here today to talk with David Spafford about his new book, A Sense of Place, The Political Landscape in Late Medieval Japan. Welcome, David, to New Books in East Asian Studies, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with me today about your book. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. So, David, can you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you come specifically to the history of Japan and to medieval Japan in particular? Yeah, um, so I should say as a, as a little, as a forward that I've, I've told the story a few times. So at this point, it's the story of how I tell the story. And I'm no longer sure if what I really thought at the time. But let me just give you the official version, as it were. Um, so I was born and raised in Italy. And I went through college. I was, I was in Italy and I studied in Italy and in Italian. And, um, and as you can imagine, so this was Rome. As you can imagine, history is, looms pretty large on everybody's minds. This doesn't mean people study history or actually know anything about history, but there's a sort of a sense of, of it belonging to the fabric of people's everyday lives. And, and I, um, and I guess I was interested in doing history and, and, 
and it, it was always on my mind. And but at the same time, having gone through the Italian schooling system, I, there was I had a certain fatigue with the whole um, sense, the sort of seemingly quote unquote natural progression from you know the pre from prehistory to Egypt and Mesopotamia to the Greeks, the Romans, the Middle Ages, and then magically Italy and. I could see that, of course, every European country probably tweaked the progression at the end to fit their own little uh, uh, sort of long-term narrative. And I always remembered that there would be this chapter around the 15th, 16th century called Great Explorations. And it was as if half of the world were just more or less drawn up from scratch. After you've been studying history for three years, you finally reach everybody else. And there was there would be a, a sh- relatively short and perfunctory chapter on all those other funny peoples out there. And so I got, I guess my sense was partly maybe as a contrarian, partly just out of curiosity, really, was it would be really nice to study some history that's not our own. Now, so this was the first half of, I guess, getting sort of interested in that part of the world. And when I came through high school and college, um, Japan was pretty big thing. Um, everybody was afraid that Japan was going to buy out every last building and piece of art in the Western world. And and at the same time, there was a sense that the Japanese were, were somehow managing to, to keep their traditions alive while, while being the most modern uh, country in the world. And, and that seemed like an interesting contrast and one, and one that also in some ways uh, ref- was similar to Italy's way of dealing with, with the modern and while at the same time embracing its roots. And so I thought, you know, this isn't, it's alien and yet at the same time it's got a pleasant familiarity. And I guess that's why I launched into it that way. I, I probably, as I suggested, um, have come to flesh it out and articulate it somewhat in a somewhat more mature way over time. But um, in Italy, you have to choose your major when you enroll in college. You, you, there's no general studies or anything. You sign up for one particular faculty, it's called. And so I signed up for Asian studies or Oriental studies, as they were called there. And most of my friends thought I was completely crazy. What do you do with it? It's completely useless. And in Italy, there was no sense of East Asia at the time. It was, I mean, it was very remote. You heard about Japan in the news, but, you know, as something you hear in the news, not as anything somebody would spend any time on. And so and so I did it, and then I decided, well, maybe I need to go to grad school at this point, because really, what am I going to do with it? And, you know, so then, you know, one step led to the other, and it really did kind of become one of those issues of sort of path dependency, I guess. You know, I was in it, I thought, oh, this is fun, let's do more of it. And <laughs> so that was about it, I guess, uh, in terms of the general being interested in Japan. And medieval Japan, because as I said, I think more remote history was what, to me, always felt like real history. The, the 19th and 20th century to me felt like just slightly old news. <laughs> so the book itself explores the spatial and territorial imagination, I think, as you put it, mm-hmm. of Eastern Japan's provincial elite in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, which was a period, as we'll talk about in a few moments, of widespread armed conflict. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to this topic in particular? What brought you to this yeah. for the book? Yeah, well, so... I would say, hmm, it, 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 again, it has a somewhat strange idiosyncratic and personal uh, sort of component to it, and I'm sure all books do, um, um, but it was less a response to academic um, trends or, or out, discourses that were out there and studies that were out there as much as it was really just me following my own weird, quirky curiosities. And um, as I was, as somebody who grew up in a foreign country, I'd always had this fascination about how people come to figure who they are, and and and, and how they describe who they are, and, and what the markers of being 
one thing or another worked. And, and so the 16th, 15th, originally I thought I was going to study the late 16th century, which is of course the age of great, the greatest upheavals, the work, the war, the civil war that starts around the middle of the 15th sort of rumbles or drags on through the late 16th and finally climaxes spectacularly in the last few decades of the 1500s. And, um, and I think I, at first I thought I would do that and because I, I had this idea that there were these sort of invading armies from different warlords who would come and take over different territories. And how did the people who kept changing hands, so to speak, construct a sense of, you know, what their land was and who they belonged to and what authority meant and things like that. And, and then I don't know what happened. At some point, I just started following sources and the, I think, somewhat pedestrian process of, oh, I need to know about this in order to write about this. Oh, I need to write, know about this to write about this sort of sucked me back into the late 1500s, late 1400s, excuse me, when it sort of quote unquote started. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a mixture of personal curiosity and happenstance in some ways that led me there. And of course, once I was there, then I sort of started thinking about it maybe more broadly and, and, and more deeply. But, um, but there isn't a whole lot of scholarship on the early 16th century. As I mentioned, I think in my introduction, it, it gets skipped a lot because it's unglamorous because most of the characters in it are not memorable and most, almost no one but the most devoted of fans and aficionados of Japanese history know the names of any of the characters, of any of the great, quote unquote, great figures of the early 16th century. So that was also interesting to me, my usual contrarian streak. <laughs> Now, the project, if I'm right, um, started out as a dissertation. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. In the transition from dissertation to book, were there any major reconceptualizations of the way you were thinking about the project, your arguments, or what was that transition like? Um, That's a, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's one of those really tricky questions because I think that there are lots of very substantially different things about the book. There there, there are parts of it that, that are recognizable on the surface. Um, but I would say overall, it, it was a case of making a number of incremental changes or refinements, or at least so I thought. And before I knew it, having come to to make perhaps a shift that was qualitative rather than purely quantitative. Um, and I'm, it, it sort of happened consciously, of course, on one level, but I think understanding the full import of how I worked with it was was took some time. And the biggest, I think, aspect that emerged that was perhaps there just um, in a in a in, in a sort of um, what's the word here, uh, germinal stage was, um, uh, if that's a word, I by the way, please interrupt me if I use words that don't exist. I think they do their Italian words, I remove the final vowel and just say them and see what happens. Um, um, so there, there were, um, the, the basic, I think the concept that started out as whole, um, as holding up, uh, chapter three, then expanded when, as I realized that actually it applied as an interpretive lens to the project as a whole. And that was this idea of a, of a persistent, what I call a persistent medieval, that is this attachment to, to the past, to tradition, to uh, to ways of doing things, and to emotional expectations, and this is something obviously we deal with all the time in our daily lives. But I, that I find historians, as historians, we I find we often forget. In other words, as historians, we're often busy looking at how historical figures plan their futures, 
how they had vision or didn't have vision. And this particularly, of course, is the case in uh, the late 16th century and the ways in which, um, in the ways in which um, uh, scholars have tended to focus on the work of great, um, some of these great warlords who, who carried out impressive reforms, who, uh, in scare quotes, rationalized their governance. And, and there's this constant thrust forward, partly because the scholarship is, is and has long been, particularly in the West, informed by uh, modernization theory and the mystery of how Japan could compete with the West, and therefore looking for the seeds of a, of a modernity in an earlier period. And, and so there's always been this attention to how people are looking forward, looking to improve things, looking to change things for the better, looking to give themselves a competitive advantage, which is logical in a time of endemic civil war. But I found as I looked at sources that that people were more worried about losing what they had or they thought they had or they believed they should still have or, of course, they imagined they once had and and weren't willing to give up on. And the, 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 the hold of that that the past had on people's imaginations and on people's senses of themselves and of their dignity was crucial in informing all kinds of decisions so that um, the way that problems were often framed, I found, was often very different from, um, from simply a problem and solution kind of approach to things. And so this, this sort of theme, which was central from the beginning to the chapter, um, uh, to the third sort of case study chapter, um, which I always forget the title of it. I want to say is was 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 two better than seventeen, but it could be eighteen. I can never remember how many they are. It's terribly embarrassing. Um, 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 but um, the point the point being that so that that was there in the that was there in the in the dissertation, but other chapters um, either were thrown out the window in completely. Um, between dissertation and and book, or will rework very substantially so that they have a different thesis. The first chapter is superficially similar, but I actually end up arguing something really quite different on every level. The um, the the chapter on castles ca- castles were a big deal, but I didn't. I really did not know what to make of them for the longest time. And I think so. To come back, uh, perhaps we'll circle and answer your question. My sense of what was really important about how it changed between dissertation and book is that I I got a sense of how things needed to hang together. I got a sense of finding a particular um, um, sort of interpretive angle that could make a disparate collection of individual essays into something somewhat more cohesive that, that depicted perhaps an epoch rather than just a series of sort of, um, you know, explorations of individual phenomena. So that's really, I think, what made it into a book. Great. And this actually really nicely gets us into the body of the book itself. Mm-hmm. So the book looks at the Kanto region mm-hmm. and you focus on the period that, or the main subject of the book focuses on the period of the years between about 1455 and 1525. Mm-hmm. You've already talked a little bit about um, your choice of this um, terminology of the persistent medieval and what that means for you and how that's important to the book. Mm-hmm. Now, related to that is actually the organization of the book itself. So yeah. you mentioned early on here, the chapters are structured thematically. It doesn't move chronologically. You mm-hmm. highlight this in the introduction and you, re- yes. you relate it here to an approach that self-consciously resists writing the history by plotting change. So mm-hmm. can you talk about that a little bit because it seems to be an important motivator for how your structure the entire project. Yeah. Um, well, 
I mean, so I think one of my first considerations was that our field, um, certainly pre-modern Japanese history and medieval Japanese history, even all the more so, um, is small, of course. And so a lot of us work on things that have never been covered before. And so I think our natural instinct, which is obviously a commendable one, is to, is to try to give as much coverage as possible. And, and so often that takes the form of a, of a sort of, and this is not a criticism of other people's work by any means, but um, it, it takes the form of, of, of a sort of chronological survey of the progression of the topic, if not of the events. And, um, and in particular, in my case, because I was, um, I was grappling on the one hand with a, with a topic that may have seen, um, that, w- that was hard to define and therefore, um, I had to be careful with how I explored it and how I sort of set its boundaries. But on the other hand, I was also, um, um, how to put it, as I mentioned, trying to avoid being sucked into this narrative, uh, this triumphalist or, or tragic narrative of, of, of the warring states period that ends with these great, uh, of the, these great larger than life heroes or anti-heroes. And, and so in order to, to resist the urge to have a, a, a simple path from A to B, um, I guess I decided to break it down thematically uh, so that I could explore the same period coming back to it and riffing upon it and hoping to have resonances carried between one chapter and the other. Um, and I guess my my objective, and again, this is something obviously it's, I, I, you can see I struggle to, to articulate fully because I guess it was very congenial to me also. Um, so I did it not entirely... Um, so it was not something that I started and planned out beforehand. It just kind of took shape that way. Um, but so I wanted to really come at different facets of how people think of, of, of their place in the world. And I thought that the best way of doing so would not be to, to have to follow uh, a, a typical path of, well, we have A and then it changes into B. Because, because part of my point, of course, was that a lot of the time you would expect it to change. But it, it doesn't really. And so how do you deal with chapters when, how do you deal with chronologically organized chapters when things don't change? I can't exactly have, and now we have chapter five, where as you can notice, everything is pretty much the way we left in <laughs> chapter four. It doesn't really work in a very exciting way. I mean, so it, it, it I think, I think it was an, or an organic, organic outgrowth of, of this, the way I chose to think about the subject. Um, or at least so I like to believe. I mean, but uh, as I, as I, as I mentioned, I, I suspect that the, the project is so enmeshed with my own uh, idiosyncratic and, and, and possibly sort of less than ideal ways of thinking about things that, um, you know, uh, it's, just, it's just, it's the way my brain works in print in some ways. So, uh, well, I think it makes sense though, um, in terms of a way of thinking about the larger work that the book is doing. So each one of the chapters, um, and these in turn, each one looks at one of the ways that provincial elites in this Kanto region considered and produced space. So this is a mm-hmm. book about the consideration of and the production of space. Yes. Focusing in turn um, on five different spheres in which this occurred. So there's a sphere for each chapter. In each case, as you um, signal early on in the book, place was experienced and or discussed in terms of an expression of the prestige of a family or an institution. Yes. So this is about the relationship between and the kind of co-production of families and yes. um, and space in, in various different spheres that we look at successively. The landscape, mm-hmm. as you put it early on in the book, was made of people. Yes. So chapter one looks at provincial elites approaches to the landscape in the literary sphere. So this is the, we're talking about literary production here. 
this chapter focuses on poetry and travel writings that portrayed the Kanto plain, the Kanto landscape. And you talk here about the importance of rules for writing about the land beyond the capital and its um, immediate environs. And these rules shaped even the writing of people who were living in and experiencing these far off lands. So one of the really interesting things that happens here in the course of this chapter is that you mentioned that in uh, between kind of 1467 to 77 and a little bit later, there's a lot of armed conflict. And because of this, and for other reasons, poets and literati start traveling. They travel the country in search of patronage among wealthy provincial magnates in particular. And this, um, you describe the kinds of ways that this impacts the word, the, the way that they're writing about the landscape and the literary production of the Kanto landscape as a result. So can you talk a little bit about that? How how did travel in this period of poets and literati um, shape, transform, impact the way that literary production of the landscape was happening? Yeah. Um, yes. Um, um, well, it's it's obviously really really tricky because it was one of those situations where I was grappling grappling needless to say with lots of different variables and um, and travel was one important variable. In other words, the the vast um, expansion of if not the areas traveled, at least sort of the body of people who were now engaged in travel. Um, so that was one new factor. People, of course, had traveled and written about the provinces long before the war. Um, but they had done so without the urgency, perhaps, of seeking out patronage in, in the provinces, which you mentioned, and which, which I believe was crucial. Um, but at the same time, of course, the other major factor that's looming, not really in the background, it's actually sort of front and center a lot of the time, is the violence of war. And, um, and so traveling it is forced to become something that is no longer simply uh, an aristocratic pastime, uh, sort of a pious endeavor to visit temples in distant regions one has read about. Um, it becomes it becomes something that must be done uh, because the the capital is now a dangerous place. Because one must, if one is a, an aristocrat who owns lands in the provinces, perhaps the, the a person must travel to the provinces to make sure one's lands, um, the person's lands are not being stolen by local warriors, um, or if you are perhaps a, a monk who also doubles as a, as, a, as a poet, you travel to the provinces to seek out patronage and favor, but you also travel to the provinces because an aristocrat said he would pay you if you would kindly go and visit some of your provincial patrons to intercede on the aristocrat's behalf. And in other words, stave off the encroachment of said aristocrats' lands. Uh, so there's all kinds of different functions that people are um, are now engaged in, and and the literary dimension of travel gets in some way sucked into all of these other activities. And I suspect enriched by my sense is that this is what's really enriching these other activities. On the other hand, though, as I mentioned, there's there is war, and people are having to, to travel through a landscape that has become increasingly perilous, and um, and often uh, visibly ravaged by by warfare. And 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 so how this. Uh, sort of um, how this turmoil, how this overturning of the normal order of society affects these poets' perception of where they're traveling would seem like a really important question, particularly because, as you mentioned, um, poetry had always been governed by very strict uh, rules about diction and about composition, and these rules went so far, <coughs> excuse me, as to um, really... Um, 
dictate how individual places were to be referenced. And so when poets find themselves traveling in the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, for the first time they encounter places that no longer visibly fit the descriptions they're being given because it's hard to talk about a placid meadow if that placid meadow is truly being sort of traveled across by army after army on the way to fight some pitched battle or besiege some castle. And so, excuse me again, um, the, the, the sense for a long time was for me trying to figure out really what was bringing about a sort of enriching of the ways people talked about place. And this, this, my starting point was that indeed something was happening poetically. And several scholars have talked about this before me, scholars who are uh, certainly better suited to analyze the subtleties of, of, this, of this poetry. Uh, people like Mac Horton or Esperanza Ramirez Christensen had in various ways grappled with um, poets or um, also um, um, Paul, Car- um, Paul Carter um, had talked about these, uh, these, these issues. And so it seemed to me, though, that while they were busy grappling with individual poets and individual experiences, there could be a benefit in trying to sort of step back and understand how perhaps these, these individual poetic experiences were part of a larger process of grappling with the changed realities of the provinces. And, and so, um, this is to go back to your earlier question, one place where a chapter changed fairly drastically beneath, under the hood, if you will, um, between the dissertation and the book. Because in the dissertation, I, I really believed that, at the time when I wrote the dissertation, I, I really believed that it was about, that it was about the war and the violence. That something about the sight of the war and the violence sort of jogged these people's imaginations. And, and this was partly because some of the poetry that is most strikingly new and, and vivid is poetry about the aftermath of war. Mm-hmm. And but increasingly, and particularly focusing more keenly on, uh, more, more carefully on travel uh, literature and travel prose, in other words, the, the, the stuff that makes up the, the, the travel diaries in between uh, verses, um, I realized how much of the everyday of the quotidian um, sort of intruded in these once very lofty expressions of, of poetic experiences. And I came to realize that um, that all of these writers were not provincials themselves mm-hmm. and that these were visitors who were coming in and describing the provinces which they were not a part of in a sense which they were visiting as outsiders and so it got me thinking about how well how, how did how did the locals experience all this change if war was such a big deal for outsiders shouldn't the war the locals also have been naturalizing or uh, or appropriating the landscape for their own ends and the fact that they didn't seem to do so much do so so much um got me thinking about the ways in which it perhaps was the the patronage relationship that um that was the real driver of of these outsiders rethinking or at least slightly tweaking the um their descriptions of of the landscape. Again, my my general sense, and this is also, I think, an important difference between the dissertation and the book. Although the book is more vivid in my mind right now than the dissertation, my general sense is that I think I say that the rules were bent but not broken. Mm-hmm. And in other words, my my sense is that the, that here too we see this attachment to what I was calling the persistent medieval. In other words, to tradition and to precedent. 
which is it's being sort of it's being yanked this way or that way it's it's being bent it's being um sort of knocked out of shape but in the end the rules seem to hold there is no rejection of the canon there is no rejection of precedent there just seems to be a, a sort of enriching it uh tweaking it a little bit um, as part of a of of adjusting to this new to this brand new market of poetry and literature, which hadn't existed. Literature had been very much a pursuit for aristocrats before the war. And the, the, the diaspora, if you will, of literati yeah, from Kyoto after um, 1466 very much puts them on a sort of market of literature and culture in general, which becomes their, which becomes their, their sort of their livelihood in a way that it hadn't been before for poets. And this is actually one of the really interesting things about um, not just this chapter, but about the work that the book does as a whole. Uh, again and again, and we'll see this also as we move to the next chapter, this is a story not about kind of easy um, A to B transformation, but it's about the kinds of phenomena that emerge out of a really productive tension. So throughout <laughs> this, it's not A or B, it's how do people, at least from the perspective of one reader, right? That's all I can give yes. is just my no, no. Yes. Um, how do people negotiate in this period this tension um, between sometimes you know impulses or factors that might seem to us to be conflicting that might seem to them to be conflicting and how does um, the this kind of productions of space and of life emerge out of this tension rather than from a, a just bald transformation. Yes. Now, we see this also in chapter two, which moves us from the sphere of the literary to the sphere of the legal. This is a really fascinating <laughs> chapter. So this chapter looks at provincial elites' approaches to the landscape in the legal sphere. And here, it looks carefully at how land disputes in particular between claimants and occupants were resolved and what that resolution reveals about the role of provincial authorities in this context. This, as you mentioned early in the chapter, and I think this is absolutely the case, it really helps us understand the legal and political significance of land holding in this period. Yes. Now, this becomes the story of the, again, negotiation over land rights by families who were institutionally tied to the Muromachi regime. So this focuses on a couple of families. At the same time as you're putting it in this chapter, and here's um, here's where I'll ask you to to speak to what's going on in this chapter a little bit. You describe here these families... Um, again, negotiating between two different guises of authority. On the one mm-hmm. hand, an official, and mm-hmm. on the other hand, a lordly guise of authority. So, can you talk? Um, can you talk about this tension or this conflict? What did it mean to be both an official and a lordly source of authority, and how did this shape um, land holding uh, legality yeah. in this period? Yeah, and um, yeah, that's definitely at the at the center of I would say that the what one would think of as some of the structural contradictions of of the whole social order in many ways, and and the fact that it that, that these tensions of course impinge on land shows once again why getting a sense of what land means and in this case land is property of course but but when you have enough of it land is property it also becomes land is space and place um, and so I really thought that getting trying to get to the nuts and bolts of this was important and this was the last chapter I actually wrote in the book and this was completely new from from the from the dissertation there was no such chapter in the dissertation and i think it came from the realization that it's good to talk about the poetry it's good to talk about sort of cultural constructs but it's important to understand how these sort of 
rest upon economic or at least political realities. And, and my interface for that was the legal one. And um, the this tension between the lordly and the official, which other scholars have uh, by all means articulated, I, I by no means would claim it as my own um, entirely, although I, I hope to do something interesting with it here, um, is the, the, the reason why this is so central to everything is that um, is that um, the primary form um, of of sort of of aggregation, shall we say, in the Middle Ages? And I'm struggling with this because part of my new project is in some ways connected to this. So one reason why I'm going to sound perhaps tentative here is precisely because I'm I'm grappling with these ideas right now. So I feel very unsure about everything I say. <laughs> um, but um, um, the the um, the, the, the primary form of aggregation and the primary locus of, of all sort of social interaction, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, is the family in some ways. Is, and, and, and how members of, of, of the family, of course, participate in the family then becomes um, central to their, to their own social personas. And um, the family, and I'm here using the family not as a, a, just as a broad expression of kin um, and kinship. Um, the family also in its more extended corporate um, dimensions um, ex- was, was also included people who had no blood ties, but who had cultivated um, extensive relations, sometimes over multiple generations. What, if we wanted to borrow the, the, the terminology of feudalism, we may call uh, vassals. Um, and I try to avoid the terminology because it's very fraught. But um, essentially, if, if for, for as shorthand, I guess we could call them vassals. In other words, people who have a, a, a very intense and very clearly structured re- relation of, if you will, and another way of putting it is clientage, patronage and clientage. And, um, and, this, and the ways in which people understood themselves to be bound together by these relations um, were uh, often sort of hinged centrally on the exchange of lands. Um, and land being essentially a form of currency uh, was used as a way to buy loyalty, to put it um, uh, very nakedly. And, and so it was crucial for anybody who had the aspiration to lead a large uh, group of men, both kin or fictitious kin, um, it was essential to be able to distribute land among among these followers in order to keep their services um, forthcoming. And and this is, in, in many ways, what I'm terming the lordly dimension of rule. In other words, a personal, effective um, form of political and social tie that is constantly fueled by um, the exchange of favor and support. Um, the problem here, and the reason why this becomes part of a larger contradiction, is that uh, these sorts of ties inevitably generated interests that were intensely particular, um, and that tended to conflict with the interests of other would-be leaders of men. Um, so that the regime, the larger regime, the larger Muromachi regime, predicated its existence on the on its ability to mediate these sometimes very particular conflicts and to keep the peace among vying aspiring lords. This ability to keep the peace uh, was signified, was sort of testified to by the regime's commitment to impartiality, 
to um, legality, if you will. I wouldn't use the term too abstractly, of course, as a notion, but to the sort of the correct, proper, careful, honest application of the law. And and again, these two these two sides, the, the cultivation of personal ties and the um, and the enforcement of a super parka's um, uh, legality, uh, are in and of themselves perfectly fine and relatively unproblematic. The problem is that in this society, what almost invariably happened was that the distribution of the posts, the distribution of the offices within this larger super legal not super legal, excuse me, um, super partis, legal organism, uh, the, the, the posts and offices there were often distributed on the basis of those same networks of clientage and vassalage that informed the exchange of land. And so people often wore multiple different hats. They could be one day they would be the impartial judge. The next day they would be the Lord who's trying to curry favor with his followers. And because this was a period of considerable political term and military turmoil, the temptation to bend the rules in order to support one's followers was always very, very present. And, um, and yet at the same time, if the regime bent its rules too far, or if members of the regime were seen as bending the rules too far, they lost the very legitimacy that allowed them to adjudicate and therefore claim a higher role for themselves. And there really isn't a, a simple answer short of dismantling the whole system. And, and most of the, most of the, the participants uh, were caught up in these contradictions at one point or other. Um, my primary interest here, to go back to the idea of making a, uh, a story that goes from point A to point B, is to grapple with the question of whether these, um, these participants in this game were keen on maximizing their personal benefit, perhaps by, in fact, discarding the trappings of this higher authority and focusing simply on the cultivation of local networks of power that were denuded of all pretenses to a higher formalistic authority, or whether, in fact, and this is what I found, uh, the participants in the in the larger official um, legal system of authority were very deeply invested in their own participation in this system and therefore unwilling to let go of it, even in the face of diminishing returns. And, and I, I think, again, here, and here I really was, to be honest, I started writing the first version of the chapter fully expecting to write a from A to B story. <laughs> And I even thought I had the right sources, and I had this guy lined up, and he's writing all these letters, and lo, look, he's doing all these things, and I had this whole trajectory. And the more I read it, I was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm kind of bending the evidence here. This is not really happening. And the more I read into it, the more documents I read, I thought, oh, I've been too eager to read it. And, you know, the decades went by, and these guys were still talking in exactly the same way, to the point where it was obvious that the rhetoric of legal adjudication, of impartiality, of of being fair representatives of the regime was being was being carried on long after you knew that that really something else must be going on at this point. Surely you can't be doing that anymore. And yet, and yet they were. You can't be adjudicating so fairly. I know you're not adjudicating fairly. In other words, and yet, and yet they. It was so part of the prestige that they derived um, that they kept doing. And I'm having obviously this is it's difficult to talk about because everything here is so. 
I think this is why it works best as a, as a, as a thematic book, because it allows me to come back to things and explain them over and over um, from different angles, because there's just so many little moving parts that, uh, or at least this is how my brain perceives them, that, um, that I think um, that sometimes it's hard to understand the complexity of the system, because, and, and that's why we've, we've, I think the temptation is really strong to see a trajectory from A to B, mm-hmm. simply because it, it it, it gives us a sense of, of something that is happening and it helps us make sense of why people were doing things. And, and I, I realized that telling a story, and I think it's the longest chapter in the book, in which for 60 pages no, nothing changes is bizarre, perhaps for a, for, for a typical history book. But I think what I'm most interested in is not so much what people do, but what they think of what they're doing and what they sell, tell themselves about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And in that respect, at least, the, 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 the fact that they were doing the same thing is interesting to me because it helps me flesh out why they were holding on to this, these systems of adjudication, why they were holding on to ideas about jurisdiction that seemed to be straining under the pressure of war, pressure of war, even after these ideas, perhaps if previous scholarship had been correct, mm-hmm. should have been jettisoned. Right, the persistent medieval, I guess. Yeah. And we see this also. I mean, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And this is a, another kind of um, tension and a phenomenon that persists through the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Two was better than 18, question mark. So yes. this moves us from the legal sphere to the patrimonial sphere. And it yes. looks at provincial elites' um, approaches to landscape in this context. Now, for local magnates occupying the lower tiers, as you describe in the book, of the warrior elite in Kanto, land disputes were a matter of patrimony and family survival. So this, again, sort of emphasizes this important point about the family. And this mm-hmm. chapter looks at this in detail. By the 15th century, some familial portfolios of land holdings included little bits of land that might be really widely scattered across a region. Now, it becomes harder and harder for families to keep tabs on these widely scattered um, bits of land that are far away from their centers of power. And you describe here that what happens is is establishing and consolidating really strong local roots and immediate access to land, which also gives you immediate access to the resources of that land, becomes really crucial for the survival of a family. So Mm -hmm. this chapter focuses on these dynamics in the context of a particular clan, the Iwamatsu clan. Mm -hmm. Um, And it tells a really, really interesting story about this. So can you talk a little bit about this in the context of Iwamatsu? What is... What is this? Basically, um, it's a way of a- answering the question. What's the what story? does this yeah. title mean? Um, yes, it's better than 18. And, and what's going on with the Uematsu clan? And how does that relate to the larger argument um, of this chapter? Yeah. Um, so what's going on? Well, so if, there, if chapter two was the last one I wrote, weirdly enough, despite this being sort of the other side of the coin of chapter two, this is the first chapter I wrote. And I think it's the one that got me thinking about this whole idea of the persistent medieval. Um, so... What's going on is I was reading this source, which is a very rich source written by a member of the extended Imamatsu family, shall we say. This was a, a monk who worked as an interpreter, go, go-between, and all-purpose expert of everything, at least in his view, for the family. And he wrote many years later uh, this, this first-person um, account of, of much of the history of the previous half-century. And at one point, I was, so I was reading through the whole thing. I was in grad school at this point, and I, I was sitting there in my little cubicle at Tokyo University and translating this thing day after day. And, and, and at one point, I just came across this particular episode that goes on for several pages. And 
it's basically the story of, and maybe I, I think I need to tell the story, right, to, to in order to be able to, to explain what the chapter is about, um, in which the um, this local family is asked for help uh, by a more important family, the Uesugi, um, who are experiencing some um, some military distress, and they ask for help from the Iwamatsu, and. Essentially, the, um, without getting into the details of what the particular problem was, that Iwamatsu agreed to help, uh, provided that they receive in return a series of rewards. And things go well for the Iwamatsu in the Uesugi in this instance, and the Iwamatsu come um, uh, come knocking at the Uesugi's door, uh, trying to cash in on the previous promise. And this is where things get interesting, because so far this has been pretty straightforward uh, back and forth between families of different uh, station. And um, what happens is that the, the Uesugi are forced to say, well, yes, we promised that we would return all of those scattered lands that you claim as your own, which have been essentially stolen by other warriors. Because and then you were not able to hang on to because they were too far from home for you, and we have promised we promised before we went into this uh, that we would essentially um, honor your claims as legitimate and make sure that you get your lands back. And what happens is that um, the Wisugi are forced to admit that they can't give those lands back, and this goes back to the tension between the lordly and the official. They can't give those lands back because other followers of the Wisugi have already laid claim to those lands. And so the Wesugi cannot take the lands back and give them to the Iwamatsu without making other people deeply unhappy. And so they're stuck. And what shall they do? And so what they do, smartly, is they say, well, we can't give you your 18 lands that you have had since time immemorial. Um, but instead, we will give you two nice, really hefty chunks of land right next door from you. Right next door from your residential castle. And and this is, to me, where what happens next is what really opened up the whole sort of, sort of, this was a kind of aha moment when I was writing my dissertation for me. Because what happened next is not that the Iwamatsu say, oh, this is awesome. We are uniting all of our lands. Future historians will look at us as a case study of how you're supposed to survive in this day and age. What they said, the, the, the guy who was doing the negotiations, who's the guy who wrote the memoir, went back to his lord and said, you know, they're offering us this. What do we do? And there was a lot of hand-wringing. And they weren't saying, oh, this is awesome. Let's take it. It's great. Two lands close to home are much better than eight small par- 18 small parcels scattered all over the country, <laughs> which we cannot possibly hold hope to hang on to. The attitude was gee, well, I guess we'll make this change. I guess we could. But gee, those other 18 lands were pretty great because they were given to us by the great shogun of old. And, you know, these lands are basically whatever. And and to me, this was kind of this important moment of realizing that that these great warriors of the 16th and 15th and 16th century were not boldly rushing into the future um, and thinking about advantage simply, but they were sort of backing into the future, looking at the past longingly, sadly, and thinking about, gee, what are we losing here in this trade? We're gaining maybe the same amount of land. It's very hard to ascertain conclusively what's being gained and what's being lost, but we can imagine that the deal must have been sort of fair enough for them to take it. Um, but the real sense is that what's being lost is the family's claim to its own past because those 18 lands, those 18 parcels, some of them just one tiny hamlet, um, what they were were a kind of um, real estate history of the family. 
because each one of those lands could be remembered and pointed to as being the reward the family had gained from offering service to some great lord of yore. They could be a purchase that was made for a particular reason and, and there was a particular deal. Um, those previous lands, in other words, came invested with, sort of pregnant with, all kinds of meanings for the families. And they were family, and they were very much associated with the family's sense of its past grandeur. Now, the 18 family, the 18 lands that, um, the 18 lands that were, were given up, um, and, you know, which may have been indefensible militarily, um, had going for them, aside for the fact that they were um, tied in terms of prestige to the names of those who had bestowed the lands to the Iwamatsu family, um, bestowed the lands upon the Iwamatsu family, um, those lands also had another significance. The very fact that they were scattered throughout the country some of them are not even in the, I mean, he's asking for lands in the Kanto primarily here, but there's other lands that we see from other registers that the Iwamatsu kept with religious care, in which they listed lands that had been lost, but they were actually theirs, but somebody else had snagged, uh, snatched up um, from them. Um, it's very clear that these lands were scattered throughout the Kanto region, beyond the sphere of authority of the Wisugi, uh, beyond the Kanto region itself, and that in some ways these lands were a testimony to the fact that the Iwamatsu were sort of, shall we call them, big league players. Mm-hmm. That they were a family that had lands all over the country because they were a family that had interests all over the country. Because they were players in, shall we call it improperly, national politics rather than just dinky local politics. Mm-hmm. And accepting the trade-off between 18 lands that were only nominally theirs and two larger estates that were in fact perfectly defensible and controllable meant also giving up this sort of high perch in which they um, uh, consorted with the great lords of the land and in exchange getting a little piece of land but that essentially relegated them to the role of sort of somewhat crummy second class you know local magnates which wasn't that exciting for a family that fancied itself uh, descendant of some of the great warriors of the past and so um, what was interesting to me was to see how not so much how the, what the transaction involved economically, monetarily, but to see how it was conceptualized and framed by those who were involved in it and to see how the stakes were perceived in, in ways that were not simply, again, material, but also uh, that went to the core of, of a family's sense of itself. Now, the next, um, thank you so much. That I think was beautifully put. The next chapter actually does a similar kind of work, but takes us into a different kind of a sphere. So chapter four looks at provincial elites approaches to the landscape in the sphere of the military. Yes. And it takes us into this context in which in the late 15th century, the Kanto Plain is really dramatically changed as the result as the result of a Castellan revolution, a revolution of castles. Castles mm-hmm. of all sizes appear in large numbers across the region. You talk about um, the kinds of the ways that these new castles differed from what came before and the significance of this revolution. Now, yes. interestingly, in a kind of phenomenon that we see um, just methodologically and conceptually that we've talked about in the context of each one of the chapters 
chapters already, mm-hmm. this new landscape doesn't completely transform the conception of space in this region. And as an example of this, the chapter looks closely at the decisions made by another family, the Uesugi family, and mm-hmm. their use and production of space. So mm-hmm. specifically here, and I'll just kind of um, throw this out there and then ask you to comment on it. Although this family is among the busiest of castle builders, yes. they actually are largely ruling from not from castles, but from military encampments. Yes. So can you talk about that? Um, what, what is significant um, about that decision that we need to understand in order to yeah. understand the larger argument you're making in this chapter? Yeah, well, so one of the things that's, that's a big deal, of course, about the, the civil war in Japan is that the, the, its its length obviously forces the people uh, or increases encourages people to marshal resources in ways that are advantageous to the to carrying out the war effort. Um, and one of the things we start seeing, it was originally believed that the great Japanese castles of the late 16th century had really sprouted up out of nowhere in the mid-1500s. But archaeological research, which has gone excavation, which has been carried out at quite a clip in the last few decades, has begun to show that actually the biggest really kind of, I, I think, as you mentioned, explosion of of castle building took place not in the glamorous 16th century, but in the unglamorous 15th century. And that um, the numbers of castles that are being built and is just is, is so startling, honestly. And to the point that you really could not travel across the countryside for very long without stumbling into one. Um, and granted, these are not the grandiose castles that we now associate with Japanese castles. They were considerably smaller affairs, but they were nonetheless vastly more impressive than anything that had come before. Um, any fortification that had existed before had been put up on a fairly strictly temporary basis. You know, you put up some fortification when you need it and you pull it down um, when you don't need it anymore. Uh, what starts happening in the 15th century, um, at a, at a, at a, the second half of the 15th century, at a very dramatic clip, is that people realize that there's really no point in having, shall we call it, a villa, and then having to rush to build a temporary shack of a castle at the top of a hill every time you have a conflict, because you've got conflicts every other week. So, Basically, what people start doing, and I'm obviously putting it lightly, but um, what people start doing is they start consolidating the functions of everyday rule that they have. Oh, I'm sorry, there that they have in villas with the um, with the military functions associated with castles, and so that so castles become, in many ways, permanent. Um, so this is a story that scholars have been have been have been painting in the last decade and a half or so, or decade maybe, um, and this is fascinating to me, and it makes the 16th the 15th century dramatic and interesting forgive me i think i don't know if you can hear it i have my email going off like crazy um oh no we don't we don't you don't hear oh sorry hear. so here i am drawing attention to it um <laughs> uh, sorry about that um it's okay the, the um what was interesting to me though is that scholars i think quite rightly point out that this transformation in the way of waging war inevitably uh, uh, brings about a transformation in the way of organizing territory and therefore plausibly a, a, a reorganization in the ways of managing power and authority. And so I kind of rushed into this thinking, oh, this is great. I'll have this new, you know, this this will be this great, exciting, this will be my point A to point D, B, you know, in the whole book. It'll be my moment of things. Something does change. <laughs> Finally. But, um, but actually, yet again, and um, what I came across was this weird situation in which the perhaps most powerful country, family in, in the region um, 
spends decades living in in what we can only describe as camps. They they build castles, but they don't live in them. And they build this one camp that lasts for a, almost a couple of decades. And t- to give you a sense of how long people thought they, it lasted, one contemporary source describes it as having stood for 30 years. Now, he got the numbers wrong, but it clearly gives a sense that he was trying to say that it lasted forever. And, um, and so this got me thinking about, well, what makes these new castles significant? Is it that they're permanent? Because really, when you have a camp the last 30 years, that's awfully permanent, too from your average person's point of view. Um, and so um, it started, it got me thinking about, well, if castles are so wonderfully useful to the prosecution of the war effort, if they give warriors this um, unprecedented advantage, if they polarize society by requiring resource and resources and therefore putting more wealthy warriors at, a, at an enormous advantage, um, why is it that the wealthiest of them all, the ones who had the greatest interest in building massive castles, uh, don't really use these castles for what they should be using them? In other words, why don't they live in them? Why don't they rule from them as great overlords? And I realized that part of the sense, part of what was going on is that that authority very much attached to people, of course, and, and that therefore... Um, Wait, I'm, I'm sort of skipping a passage here, but let's just put it this way to simplify um, that these great lords did not need, strictly speaking, the majesty of a castle in order to manifest their authority. Mm-hmm. And what they did feel they needed in a time of war was to make their presence visible, to be able to renew their ties with local warriors, to be able to uh, carry out their justice throughout the land, to be able to sort of move around hearing appeals, the kinds of appeals that I was, you know, appeals and petitions that I was describing in chapter two, um, sort of obviously rushing from one end of the, of the, of the Kanto plain in order to pacify um, restless followers, in order to quell rebellions and so on and so forth. What they really needed in many ways was to be present. And and so the, the idea of the encampment, obviously an encampment that stands for 30 years is not terribly mobile either, but, um, but it is formally at least mobile in that it is the camp remains distinct from, from a castle. Um, the idea that seemed really, really strong to me was that these warriors believed that any that, that moving into a permanent castle would essentially curtail, their visibility. It would essentially turn them into local lords. Now, many warriors chose to do just that and were perfectly fine doing just that. The Iwamatsu that we were talking about a moment ago did just that. And even though they had lots of um, uh, misgivings about giving up their old prestige, they were perfectly happy to build themselves a nice mountaintop castle. So this was not necessarily something that was resisted by anyone. After all, as I said, there was more castles being built at this time than ever before. But the warriors of the very very highest echelon of provincial society um, were the ones who resisted most conspicuously. And my sense in this chapter is that the way what I try to, uh, what I grapple with is what is the payoff for them in trying to live 
in an encampment, which may, might, by the way, may or may not have been particularly uncomfortable. I mean, we shouldn't imagine them, you know, camping out at Yellowstone or anything. Obviously, these military encampments, which were st standing for 30 years, had a lot of facilities, you know, your basic sort of living quarter facilities that Japanese houses probably had for the most part. Uh, we don't know exactly because, of course, Japanese are built in wood uh, and therefore the archaeological sites don't yield a lot of remains of, say, uh, you know, brick and mortar and, you know, any kind of masonry. So what we go on mostly is the shape and the layout of these castles. But um, what they were, so in other words, I guess what I'm saying is, these, these camps may not have been terribly rough and unpleasant. In fact, uh, what I argue is that these camps, because of the presence in the camp of these great lords, became, um, became and came to be viewed as uh, courts of a, of a kind. They were no different, really, from palaces or urban centers. And, and so that what these Wesugi were trying to do in this time, and perhaps a little anachronistically, is they were trying to hang on to their pan-regional visibility and authority, while at the same time maintaining a level of military mobilization that would allow them to uh, confront the challenges of the age. What they were resisting in castles was the fact that anybody could build a castle after all. Mm -hmm. And in, a, in, some, in many ways, the military advantages that accrued from building a castle seemed probably less appealing to the Uesugi than the disadvantages in terms of prestige and visibility that would come with them. And so that for about, uh, for about 50 years, the Uesugi grapple with this encampment experiment. And eventually, in the last 20 years before the family is more or less destroyed, um, uh, in, in, for the first 50 years, they do stick with camps, and it's only in the final 20 years when they are very much uh, on, in a sort of in a defensive position vis-a-vis -a, -vis a foreign or outsider lord that's invading the Kanto. Only then do they uh, do they shift to castles as a last resort defensive maneuver. Um, and 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 so I guess yet again in this chapter, what I'm trying to grapple with is why do why do the choices that we may so after the fact, identify as the rational choices, as the most effective choices in, in, in the long term, why were these choices so often seen as unappealing to contemporaries? Why did they view the set of problems before them so differently from the way we think rationally they should have? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. <laughs> So, David, there's um, just in the interest of time so that I don't keep yes. you for another, for another hour, which I yes. think we easily could do in talking about the last chapter in the coda, I'll just kind of briefly mention for listeners what's happening in the last chapter. And then if you want to mm -hmm. add anything like that. Um, the, ch the fifth chapter, which is the final body chapter before the coda, just uh, so that listeners know, it actually does um, at one point do this move from A to B. So I think it's important to be mentioned. It does. It does. It does. Um, so this chapter looks at provincial elites' approaches to the landscape in the sphere of governance. And it looks closely and really interestingly at the documentary language of boundaries to try to understand the relationships between conceptions of territory and political and military power in this period. And you're showing in this chapter the ways in which the political and military landscape is in fact non-territorial. And you evidence this um, by pointing to a lack of references to boundaries in contemporary documents aside from those of individual land holdings or those of the old imperial provinces. Instead, 
instead of a language of boundaries and frontiers, you're pointing to a language of access points. And this becomes really important. Now, midway through the chapter or sort of late in the chapter, we get our A to B transition. <laughs> um, and, you're, and you're showing us um, here how in the, I think, second quarter um, of the 16th century, the organization of the region actually really transforms. And it goes from having no frontiers or being everywhere a frontier zone, right, between petty uh-huh. local warriors, to being divided between a domain core and multiple frontier zones. As yeah. you put it here, the identity was, for the first time, identity was established between a ruling house and the territory that it ruled. And so mm-hmm. here we have that final satisfying point A to point B transition. No, it's great. <laughs> um, so I'll just sort of mention that so that um, listeners will go and hopefully read the chapter and, and get that um, story themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, before we close, um, there is a coda here, and the coda actually brings us into, um, just very briefly, some of the transformations that happen from this turn, um, or in this turn from medieval to the early modern. And just as a way of wrapping this up before we come to our closing, do you want to speak to that a little bit of what are the kind of major things we need to understand to understand what's transforming? Well, what I was trying to address in Dakota is that is is what has become right now. I was going to say a burgeoning scholarship, but really at this point it has burgeoned. I mean, it's 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 large, a large body of scholarship that has been produced in the last really fifteen years about the creation. Um, and different scholars put it differently, but in its most in its strongest interpretation, the creation of of Japan as a nation. Uh, in the early modern period, largely through the, um, the really the circulation of bodies, I would like to say, the, the, uh, largely through people's mobility, people's ability to experience the land and become part of um, become part of a tradition, a still living tradition that is just like the land is um, made readily available. And the way this this tradition is made readily available is in two ways. One is, of course, peace makes travel much easier. You can go around and see famous sites, whether famous sites of battles or famous sites of, you know, um, previous poets have come by here and they've written a poem about it. Let me go see it. Um, but also, this is it's made more accessible because of the explosion of the printing industry, which really takes off in um, around the middle of the 17th century. And one of the was one of the sort of large categories of publication that is most popular uh, and expansive is the travel guide genre, which really, in many ways, lays out all of Japan as an identifiable, rec- and under- comprehensible, and, and in some ways, almost synoptically um, experienceable, excuse me, um, sort of unit where everybody before had only seen the particular. Um, now, finally, we have this Japan thing, and it can be held. To, and you can hold it in your hand. You can you can buy it for cheap at a bookstore. You can you can borrow it from a lending library, and you can have it, and you can know it. And 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 there's a, a substantial um, scholarship now on this. And. Um, I guess what I was trying to talk about, aside from just saying, me too, me too, I'm doing talking about some of these same issues in the Middle Ages, look at me too, um, 
one thing I was trying to do was, of course, address what often happens when um, scholars uh, cross chronological boundaries, which is the inevitable sense that people in a different time period are claiming for themselves all kinds of things that you know that were happening before or after or what have you. They were happening, in other words, at a time that was different from when the claims were being made. And... Um, one thing that's particularly strong about the, this new scholarship on Japan is the tendency, which I think is very welcome, to transform the early modern views of the early modern period from views of a kind of police state that started really strong and oppressively and then faltered because of its own lack of ability to um, to really keep up its game to the, the, the high, high, at a high enough level. Um, the, the view has changed, thanks to this new scholarship, to one that is much sunnier and, in fact, is much more interested in the, the, the large population of commoners and how a, a large sense of, the, of people's experience at this time, thanks to travel, was an experience of freedom, of liberation, of traveling across the country, getting away from the constraints of society and just kind of enjoying your experience of being Japanese while at the same time obviously reinforcing or perhaps even creating the experience of being Japanese. Um, and in, the, in, in, in this new scholarship, in creating this new, as I say, very welcome image, um, also though tends to see the Middle Ages as a period of very little travel and, a very, and of travel which is very dogmatically beholden to the rules of composition, to the rules of diction, to the rules, the lists of places you could see. And, and so, if you, so the, mid, the Middle Ages essentially becomes the bad guy yet again, um, as it's, of course, its typical um, role in, in the history of history. And, um, and I guess what I wanted to do was complicate the picture in the coda really briefly and playfully, hopefully, uh, suggesting that, in fact, uh, in the Middle Ages, there already had been, for, for the few who were able to travel, there had been the ability to explore Japan, and at least in that brief window of rules being bent in the 15th and 16th century, there was also the ability to see Japan with one's own eyes, one's own eyes, and to really experience it in new ways. To kind of write a narrative of Japan as one traveled in the six, in the in the early modern period, I argued instead, very again, very briefly and, and not terribly seriously, that this world is so clearly spelled out and taxonomized and organized that while everybody could travel there, uh, people were no less free to imagine Japan than they had been in the Middle Ages because really it had been laid out so minutely all of this publishing industry, that people became in many ways passive recipients of an idea, just as they had been, or just as they were accused of having been in the Middle Ages. Great. Well, David, thank you so much. Um, there's so much that we could talk about that we talked about about the book, and it's an extraordinarily rich study. We haven't even scratched the surface of the really the fascinating individual sources that you're bringing out, and so there's a lot for listeners um, mm-hmm. to find when they go and, and hopefully read the book themselves. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Oh, that's that's a great question, and you know, um, I knew it was coming, but um, <laughs> somehow it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, aside from yeah. me just rambling on for half an hour for for a lot of other from a lot of oh, we didn't talk about this, we didn't talk about that. But what I would say is um, one thing that maybe the book does, which is somewhat unusual, and I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's somewhat unusual and it maybe worth considering. Is um, for modern the studies of the modern world, we 
we we're comfortable talking about you know six months of history, two days of history, uh, you know a day of no a year of no particular significance or, or, or whatever the famous book is called exactly. Um, the for as we move back in time, we feel we always have to cover the long durée and we have to have two hundred years under our belt in order to be able to say something meaningful. And I think maybe the one thing that that I should have probably mentioned earlier, and that's why I'm mentioning now, that is useful about approaching things thematically and not feeling beholden to the A to B schema, is that when we are uh, sort of invested in the long durée, we inevitably have to find change. And that in some and in some ways the change obscures or distracts us from the appreciation of what people were hanging in on to. And people were not hanging on to stuff just because change doesn't happen and that's a failure because bummer things should have changed. Why haven't they? But rather people were hanging on to things because there were positive values to be hung on to, sometimes in the face of really rather exceptionally adverse odds. And so I think that it's, it, it may be useful for us to, to think um, in terms of the, when we talk about the, the very pre-modern world as well, to, to, to try as much as possible. And obviously, it's a challenge also to our, to our resources that are available and to our inventiveness to, to, to sometimes focus on, if not smaller incidences, at least smaller chunks of time as a way to try to, to really, I want to say, play with them for longer and, and try to see what what we can perhaps tease out of them. Awesome. I'm on board for that. <laughs> so speaking of what we should do in the future, um, yes. now that the book is out and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. What's, uh, what's next for you? What projects are, or what project or projects are what project inspiring to, you? Um, well, so I, it, it really is kind of a, a natural outgrowth of the, of the first project. And once I decided the language was made of people, the, the landscape was made of people, I guess I decided that I should look. And, and when I said people, obviously, I, I typically referred to families. Um, I decided that I really should try to grapple with what this idea of a, of a family, in particular, the medieval uh, form of the family, which is the house and with the year. And, and so what I'm trying to work with now, contradicting my previous advocated point rather blatantly is to look at uh, at late medieval year perhaps across the divide let's say going from around 1500 to uh, to maybe 1650 or 1700 uh, so a slightly longer time period but is to try to understand not the changes in the structure of the year from 1500 to 1650, which I, I don't think were particularly significant, but rather to understand how this particularly difficult and fraught transition from late the late medieval to the early modern um, was experienced in terms of what was the central organizing locus of society, the, the, the central place, the central repository of people's um, um, you know, yearnings and aspirations and concerns. And so I'm trying to look at the EA really and, and, and tease out um, what, so if, you know, if family was what made landscape meaningful, if family was at the center of everything, well, exactly what was it that people thought they were talking about when they were talking about family? Awesome. Well, best of luck with that project. And congratulations again. <laughs> thank you very much. Truly, thank you so much for making the time. It really was a pleasure. And I hope everyone will go out and read the book now. And thank you very much. It's been, it was very fun. And I hope it was helpful to people. And um, again, thanks for having me. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.